Welcome to City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills podcast. We exist to lead people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coahforesthills.org. Now this morning we're looking at Genesis chapters 30 and 31. We're, uh, last week we cut off in the middle of chapter 30. And I think what's interesting about Genesis and what it's really showed us has been that the gospel, the, the word of God applies to all of life, that there is nothing in our lives that the work of Jesus, his word doesn't apply to. And I've had many people remark as we've been looking at this series in Genesis about how applicable this is, that this book that is thousands of years old would be applied to us in 2023. While they had no social media and no dating apps and things of that nature, thank God, um, they, uh, they are dealing with the same things we're dealing with. Um, they're dealing with the same struggles that we deal with, the same problems we deal with. And we see that God's word is timeless and the Bible also says that Jesus, the word of God, is, uh, is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And we see that not only in the book of Genesis, but throughout the scriptures, that they apply to our lives today. You see this in the book of Ecclesiastes, where everything is vanity, everything feels pointless, everything feels hopeless. And there have been times over the last few years where we felt those things. We look to the Psalms and the Proverbs for wisdom about money and about parenting and about, about love. We look at the end of Judges and we see a phrase that I think is the last seven years of political drama that everyone is doing what they think is right in their own eyes. Can I get an amen? Amen. I got mm, the groanings of the spirit on that one. Um, but the reason we see this is that there are some major themes that run through the Bible that just kind of make up what it means to be people what it means to be human, how we relate to God. And we see these particularly in Genesis. And one of these is that people make stupid decisions. We all make really, I make dumb decisions sometimes. I'm sure that you do too. Um, we act selfishly. Sometimes we're unjust. Um, but we also see this theme that runs through that God is faithful. That God is faithful in our dumb decisions that God is faithful and he's committed to bringing about the renewal of all things. And we see this promise running through Genesis, this sort of scarlet thread that runs through the entire Bible, that a savior is coming. That no matter how sinful we are, that God is going to fulfill his promise through this family to bring the savior into the world. And we know later on what uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob did not know, that this is Jesus, that Jesus came and lived and died and rose again. And so while they were looking forward in the Old Testament to the Messiah, we are looking backward from the New Testament to the Messiah. We know it's Jesus. We look back to Jesus. And so the main takeaway that we could come from every sermon, particularly in Genesis, is that we fail and yet God is faithful to fulfill his promises by his grace. But as we dig a little bit deeper, we begin to apply this grace to different areas of our lives. We see that the hope of Jesus is the hope that we need for fear, that the hope of Jesus is what we need for failure that we need wisdom for dating and marriage. We need hope that broken families and relationships can be restored. We need hope in the midst of death and infertility and injustice, that there is a gospel, that there is good news that can come true. And so the gospel of Jesus, which is going to make all things new, and one day there will be no more tears, there will be no more pain, there will be no more suffering, gives us a framework for life. It gives us a framework by which we can apply every, it, it to everything. And this morning is no different because the topic we're going to be looking at from Genesis uh, chapter 30 and 31 is conflict. We're going to be looking at how do we resolve conflict. And 
the reality is, is most of us lack the adequate tools to deal with conflict. None of us like conflict. Some of us would move states to avoid conflict. When we feel like the only option we have when it comes to conflict is somebody has to win and somebody has to lose. I think this is why most Americans don't like soccer, is there's a tie at the end. Well, we don't like hockey. We need a winner, right? That's what the NFL bothers me. Someone should win the game. We, we come to conflict the same way. We feel like the only options are this crazy expectation that no one's ever going to hurt you or you'll never hurt them. Or we sort of have this rotating group of relationships where if we get hurt in one relationship, we move to the next one, whether it's romantic or a friendship or a church, because we can't deal with conflict. But what if there was a way that we could resolve conflict that led to greater joy? What if there was a way that we could resolve conflict that led to closer relationships? And the gospel actually shows us that there is a way. Because conflict is unavoidable. If you're going to be in a relationship with anybody of any kind, you are going to have conflict. It's going to happen. We have to learn to resolve it. And as a church in the city of Boston, we have to figure out what it means to deal with conflict. There are going to be times that we do not see eye to eye. I'm going to burst the bubble, especially if you're new to City on a Hill. Someone here is going to let you down. Someone here is going to disappoint you. Someone here is going to hurt you. Not because they're trying to, but because we're human. But we have to learn to deal with those issues because Richard Baxter says that the consequences of other sins destroy the church, but division and separation demolish it directly. Our conflict and our inability to deal with it will be a direct threat to our church's unity. So today, we're going to journey through a long passage, learning about how to deal with conflict. And so we're going to do something a little different than we typically do. I'm going to walk us through the story. uh, And then at the end, I'm going to make some observations that we see from it. And so I do want to encourage you, if you have a Bible, open it. Uh, Open it to Genesis chapter 30 and 31. Look in the pew back if you don't have one of those. Pull it up on your phone. The Bible app is a great resource. This will help you, especially as we're going through a a longer text like this. So we're going to jump in here this morning at chapter uh, 30, verse 25. And we see it starting with these words. It says, as soon as Rachel had born Joseph. Now, going back a little bit to last week, we saw we ended with Jacob uh, completing his very large family with the birth of Joseph. He now has 12 sons, at least one daughter, a very large family. And so Jacob has had the son. And as soon as this son is born, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. A little bit of background there. Jacob had just worked for 14 years for his, uh, for his now father-in-law Laban to marry first Leah and then Rachel. And so he is fed up with the situation. He is ready to go. He's paid his dues and he requests for his release. He's asking for an immediate release. And he's very insistent in this. He says in verse 26, give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go for you know the service that I have given you. I have done everything you've asked me to do and I am ready to leave. We are even. Well, verse 27, we see that Laban is beginning to kind of sweat a little because his best employee is about to walk out the door. He says to uh, to Jacob, if I have found favor in your sight, I have uh, learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. And then he says some famous words that he said in chapter 29 uh, where he says, name your wages. Now, you know those words got Jacob in trouble last time when he said, name your wages for my daughter, Rachel. And Jacob runs in like a sucker, gives away seven years of his life. 
But here, Jacob has the leverage. He's the best worker. All the blessing to Laban has come through him. And it's like Michael Scott said on the office, oh, how the turntables have turned. And they are, he is ready to put it right back on Laban. And we see that, that, uh, that as he talks to Laban, he says, he says, you yourself, verse 29, know I've served you and how your livestock has fared with me for you had little before I came and it has increased abundantly. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now when, sh- uh, when shall I provide for my own household also? Verse 31, he says, what shall I give you? And so he knows he has him over a barrel. And then Jacob says these words, he says, I don't want anything from you. You shall not give me anything anything. I know what it's like to be indebted to you, and I don't want to have any strings attached in this relationship. And so he sort of, he says, okay, I want you to just give me the least of your flock. And kind of paraphrasing the next few verses, he asked for the weakest of the flock. He asked for those who were spotted and striped and the black sheep, those that were worth less. He asked Laban for those And in in this process, he agrees to pasture that flock and whatever he receives from it as his due, he would take as his own. And we see a little bit later that this lasted about six years. So he has given now Laban 20 years of his life in order to bring this about. He's willing to take the weakest and the least. This job is so bad that he says, forget the bonus. I just want out the door. And so Laban agrees to this in verse 34 where he says, good, let it be as you have said. Now, if you know anything about Laban's character from last week, you can't trust him as far as you could throw him. He, as an old Southern phrase, you can't throw him very far. You can't trust him. He knows that whatever Laban says is not worth the words coming out of his mouth. And we see immediately in verse 35, but that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black and put them in the charge of his sons. He took what was supposed to be Jacob's away immediately. He deceived Jacob and he creates a distance between them of three days, according to verse 36, between himself and Jacob and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. So we see this deceit and this distance But Jacob, being a a smart man, understands that he can't trust Laban. So he outsmarts Laban in verse 37, sort of this mixture of superstition and being practical. In verse 37, uh, it says that Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plain trees and peeled white streaks uh, in them, exposing the white of the sticks. And what he did from there was take those and laid them down on the watering troughs. And there was this old wives' tale that if you were to do so, you could actually determine what your... uh, uh, what, your, uh, what your flock would look like. It was kind of like when you were a little kid, you heard all these wives' tales about, you know, if you chew gum and you swallow it, how long is it going to take for it to digest? Anybody remember? Seven years. If you drink coffee as a child, what's going to happen? It's going to stunt your growth. Neither of those are true, right? You know, but our parents had us convinced. I would have been swallowing gum and, and drinking coffee at age four if that was the case. They just didn't want to share. Uh, And so Jacob has this superstition that leads him to this place to do this. But also we see that he has some practical wisdom about what it looks like to build a strong flock. We see in verse 40 that Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob. Jacob's. And so he uses a little bit of practical wisdom and says, I'm going to get for myself, knowing that Laban is going to deceive me anyway, I'm going to get mine 
uh, get my own, get my due. And so when we look at this, why was Jacob successful? Why, why did God bless this? Is it because of the superstition? Is it because he said some sort of magic prayer? Is it because of his brilliance or his, his ability to understand livestock? No, it was simply God's grace. John Calvin saw the hand of God in this and said that God revealed to Jacob that this was the means by which God was going to bless his flock simply because he chose to. And so we fast forward to uh, chapter 31, verses one through two, and Jacob realizes that it's time to go. He has got to get out of uh, Laban's home. It says that he heard the sons of Laban were saying uh, that Jacob has taken all our fathers, uh, all that was our fathers, and from what was our fathers, he has gained all his wealth. So they start spreading lies about Jacob. And he realizes again that Laban is going to change his mind, that he did not regard him with the favor that he had before. And when we see Laban and his sons, they're a little bit like the, the, the birds in Finding Nemo when the fish land up on the deck and they're like, mine, mine, mine. They want everything that's Jacob's and Jacob realizes he's got to get out. And this is really important at this moment for us to slow down a little and see the big themes of God's grace in the midst of our conflicts. That God is still at work in the middle of everyday life. What we just explained, you could take the same scenario and, and change it up for something modern that might be happening in your life. And we see these, these themes that, that often make us, that are meant to comfort us when we feel alone, that are meant to comfort us when we panic at the idea of conflict or, or feel anxious, that God is still good and God is still sovereign. And so in verses three through five, we see that God is present with Jacob. He says to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred and I will be with you. And as he meets with his wives in secret in verse four, fast forwarding to verse five, he says, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. Now, this is a pretty major shift in Jacob's character. And I don't want us to jump over this too quickly. Jacob has heard for years that God is with him. He heard this all the way back in chapter 29. He heard this all the way back before he ventured into this land to find a wife. But now for the first time, he's repeating those words. He's begun to internalize the truth of God in such a way that he begins to share those truths. He says that God has been with me. God promised to be with me. And what needs to happen in the midst of our conflicts is we have to learn to rehearse these very simple truths from the scriptures in the middle of our struggles and conflicts and trials, that God is with me. Today may be difficult, but my God has been with me. I may feel alone, but my God is with me. Jacob also experiences the protection and the provision of God. As Jacob is explaining to his wives about what's going on here, he says in verse six that uh, his wages had been changed. Verse seven that, um, or sorry, verse eight that his wages have been, uh, verse, yeah, verse six, his wages have been changed, that it, if they were spotted, he would take the clean ones. If they were clean, he'd take the spotted ones. And he says in verse nine, thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. He's provided for me. And that every time in verse seven that he meant harm for him, that God would protect him, that God did not per permit him to harm him. We see God's plan at work in verse 11. That God is, is in the midst of this, that God works sovereignly behind the scenes, even in the midst of human sin. When others sin against us, God still has a way to use the disobedience of others to bring about his will. It says, and the angel of God said to me in, in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. 
And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I have, been, or I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. I'm with you and I'm in the midst of working this out. Even his daughter, even Laban's daughters, Rachel and Leah, Jacob's wives feel abandoned and they see God's hand in this. Verse 14, they say, is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners for he has sold us and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our fathers belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. We can trust in the plan of God in the midst of our trials and our struggles and our suffering, believing that God is working out all things for our good. When we look at this situation, what brought these things about? Was it, was it Jacob's foolish choices? Was it Laban's sinful choices or was it God's will? The answer is yes. God worked all those things out. In verse 17, we see the escape We see that Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels and they take about a 350 mile uh, uh, trek across dangerous terrain, across a river. They wait until uh, until Laban has left in verse 19 to go shear sheep. Uh, And we see along the way that Rachel steals the household gods, which seems like a very petty thing to do. I'm gonna kind of swipe all the the stuff I can pawn off later uh, in case we get stuck on the road. I'm not sure why she did this, whether it was fear or spite, but there's actually a belief that maybe that the the ancient uh, gods, the the, the household gods were sort of a sign of who ran the family. And so they, they leave and in verse 22, Laban gets word of this on the third day. He's upset. He's not looking to have a civil conversation because he brings the whole squad with him in verse 23. He took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days. And he's ready to take out his revenge until the Lord steps in in verse 24 and warns him to not be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. We see God intervening in the midst of this when he feels out of control. And in verse 25, we see that Jacob is overtaken by Laban and you wonder how could someone overtake somebody with a three-day head start? Number one, have you ever traveled with children? Number two, have you ever traveled with 12 children? I have not, but I can imagine the logistics of that. How many times you have to stop at Chick-fil-A? How many times you got to fill up a cup? How many bathroom stops? That is, it makes total sense from just a practical standpoint. And Laban looks at this and he tries to play the victim. He says in verse 26, what have you done that you have tricked me? Isn't that an incredible statement to say that I've just, you know, I've I've frauded you for for 20 years and I'm the victim. And he pretends to care in verse 27. Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with myrrh and songs, with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. You know, while you were robbing me blind, I wanted to throw you a party. And he tips his hand that this is not really what he wanted to do in verse 29, where he says, it is in my power to do you harm. So my power to do you harm, but the God of your father spoke to me last night. In other words, if it weren't for God, you would be in trouble. And in verses 31 through 35, we see Jacob accusing, being accused by Laban that he stole his household gods, Jacob seemingly being innocent, Rachel not telling him. And we see Laban rifling through everybody's tents, through Jacob's tent and Leah's tents and the servant's tents. And he gets to Rachel's tent, who happens to be sitting on top of a of a saddle with the idols underneath. 
and says these words, whether these, this is a lie or whether this was just the truth, that she was with the way of, for the way of woman was upon her. And so Laban, his, his, his searching doesn't come to an end. He finds nothing. And we see in verse 36 through 42, what most of us want to do in the middle of a conflict is unload 20 years of that pent-up anger. He unloads on Laban. He says, you accuse me of taking your gods. What is my sin? What's my offense? What have I done? All I've ever done for you is I've been a good shepherd. I've worked really hard. And he gives this accurate description of what it means to be a shepherd. That over 20 years that none of the animals miscarried. That he took personal loss when one of the animals was lost. That if something was stolen, it came from his pocket, that he was cold, that he was hot. This doesn't give a very you know, kind of hallmark picture of what it meant to be a shepherd. You don't just get to like hold baby sheep all day. It was a dirty, messy job. This is that moment you've, we've all dreamed about in that job we hate. We just want to throw our papers up and walk out the door. He got to tell Laban off. And if the story ended here, it would be a pretty sad story. And so we need to dig a little deeper on what it means for us when it comes to conflict. There's clear hostility here. And so I want to look at three ideas to explore. Number one, why we have conflict. Number two, how to resolve conflict. And then number three, the end of conflict. And so there's some some pretty practical reasons for why we have conflict just right here in the situation is one is our expectations, unmet or unclear expectations. Laban and Jacob clearly are not on the same page. And Jacob's frustration is growing day by day by day. Every time that Laban says one thing and changes his wages, he gets a little more frustrated and it just begins to fester all over time. Laban thinks it's fine. He's getting what he wants out of this situation. And when you're in a relationship with another person, if what you want and what the other person want, if you're not on the same page and you're not communicating about it, it will breed conflict. If you're not on the same page about how much quality time you're going to spend with somebody, if you're not on the same page about who's paying for what and who's paying the bills, if you have a roommate and it's like, well, who's supposed to do this? You want it to be even. Maybe you're thinking one thing and saying another and it leads to conflict. Another thing that leads to conflict is just the erosion of trust. All trust is gone in this relationship. At the very beginning, Jacob trusted Laban based on his mother, Rebecca's recommendation that he'll take care of you. And so he was so willing to run into a relationship with his daughter, Rachel, that he just would trust him with anything. And now we're at a point in the story where he wants nothing to do with him. Trust gives us the benefit of the doubt that if I'm listening to another person and I trust you, I'm willing to maybe overlook some things. I'm willing to believe that maybe you're just having a bad day today. I'm willing to believe that you actually have my good in mind. But when trust is gone, the benefit of doubt's gone too. You don't overlook offenses. You get defensive and edgy and and you apply the worst possible motive to somebody. And when you promise someone that you'll keep your word and you don't do it, what ends up happening is it just erodes that trust, which leads to greater conflict. Another reason is proximity and time. The more time you spend with people and the closer quarters you spend them with, the greater opportunity for conflict. I had a college roommate who we were really good friends in high school until we became college roommates. And we didn't see eye to eye and we didn't have the same idea of what it meant to clean the house and we didn't have the same idea of what it meant and when to eat and when to listen to music. Like we butted heads. You probably experienced this during COVID. If you were in quarantine with anybody and you were like, I just don't like the look of your face right now. Like, I just, I'm struggling with you. And this is the reason why we have conflict with our families. 
The reason we have conflict with our closest friends is because you spend the most time and you're in the closest proximity to those people. Jacob and Laban have now had 20 years in the same house and they are butting heads. And the reality is, is that the church is a place that conflict is easy to arise because we spend a lot of time together. We see each other every week. You get in community group together and you see that same person again and again and again. You get that one person who talks a lot and the person who doesn't talk enough. And you get that one person who, you know, never wants to hang out and the other one wants to hang out all the time. And we just can't see eye to eye. Or we, we argue over something. We hurt one another's feelings. And so we have to learn to work through that conflict because when we learn to work through conflict with people we're the closest to, it leads to deeper love and joy. We're able to restore relationship. So proximity and time, but also sometimes it's just legitimate frustration. Sometimes you, ha- you have a reason to be frustrated. Jacob has a real gripe here. He has gotten the raw end of the deal for 20 years. He's had his wage changed 10 times. He has worked hard at personal cost. And what this shows us is that not all conflict is bad. Sometimes we need to have conflict in order to get to the bottom of a situation. Conflict can lead to healing. Conflict can lead to justice. It can lead to restored relationship. But what we often do with conflict is we just bottle it up. I'm going to swallow all of this. I'm just going to bear it. I'm going to be the nice person. Or we just run away. But neither of those help us. We, we can learn to do this as a church because when we need to learn this, because what can happen is legitimate frustration can jump over to real sinfulness, bitter sinfulness in a blink of an eye. And if not addressed, this, this has a way to blind us in our woundedness. Tim Keller says that when the inevitable conflicts occur, our memories can sabotage us. They can prevent us from doing the normal day-to-day work of repentance and forgiveness and extending the grace that is so crucial. We have to learn to do this and work through our legitimate frustration towards healing. But if we get down below the surface, I think there are a couple of hard issues that actually lead to conflict. Number one is every single one of us is driven toward our own self-interest. It's all about me. I remember when my kids were little, uh, two of my kids were were in a conversation, they were fighting over something and they were saying horrible things to one another. And I asked one of the kids, I won't say their name because I didn't ask for permission for this. I said, what matters most, your your sister or Play-Doh? And she said, Play-Doh. And I said, okay, well, what matters most, your sister or Play-Doh? She finally said, me. Um, She's being honest. Most of us, if we're honest, it's about me. It's about my Play-Doh. It's about what I get out of this. And when it comes to the self-interested seer of Laban and his sons, they are so threatened by Jacob, they're willing to deceive them because they're afraid of what they're going to lose. And what we see in the story is, and it's said by Laban, it's said by Jacob, it's said by everybody else, there's plenty to go around. My blessing is not a threat to your blessing and your abundance is not a threat to my abundance. We can all thrive when we're working together. This family was meant meant to be a blessing to all people. The other is that conflict arises when your idols are threatened. What was Laban most upset about? He was upset about the household gods. In fact, the wording and the exact wording in chapter 31, verse 19, when you, when you translate that literally means that Rachel stole Laban's heart. Isn't that crazy to think she stole what he wanted most? When you fight with someone else, what ends up happening is what you want most gets threatened. When you're in conflict with somebody else, it usually arises because your security gets threatened. Whether someone's loyal to you gets threatened. Your sense of wanting to be in control or of power, 
your resources, your comfort. And so when you're in the middle of a conflict, take a moment, stop and ask, what's being threatened? But we need to understand that that we have to learn to resolve these things. And the gospel gives us a way to do this. So quickly, I want to run through these before we get to the cross, which is where we have to land. The way we resolve conflict, firstly, is through addressing real hurts. Jacob didn't sugarcoat this. Jacob laid out all the offenses that had happened over 20 years. It's like Alexander Hamilton at the end of Hamilton laying all his offenses out for Alexander Burr. Aaron Burr, sorry, Aaron Burr. I just, for all the Hamilton people who are like, you're wrong. Um, this is the only way to real healing. The only way to real healing is to clearly address the offense, to get to the bottom. Now, that doesn't mean you come in throwing bombs. It doesn't mean you come in throwing accusations. It doesn't mean you be a jerk. But if you realize that you're in Christ and that you're secure in Christ, you can admit you're wrong. You can admit how sinful you are and you can stand on Jesus's righteousness. So we have to address real hurts. Secondly, we have to seek a way to peacefully coexist. Sometimes you're just not gonna see eye to eye with somebody. You're not gonna agree on every last detail of this. Jacob and Laban finally decide they're not going to agree on everything. They make a covenant with one another, and they don't even agree on what to name the heap of rocks that mark the covenant. They just agree to part on good terms. Sometimes we just have to find a way to say, hey, we're not going to be able to get from A to Z today. We just got to figure out how do we start the healing process? How do we peacefully coexist? Thirdly, we have to allow resolved conflict to deepen our relationships The heap of rocks was a reminder that God had brought them through all of this and that there was a new day coming for them to work toward restoration. The the easy road in conflict is to just cut somebody off. The easy road in conflict is to get even or to go elsewhere. So Jim Gaffigan talks about when he talked about his, his, to his friends from California about going back to see his wife's family in Wisconsin, they were like, oh no, you, you just need to get a new wife. Like you go somewhere else. Like that's what we think about when we think about conflict. It's like going to Wisconsin in the winter. We don't wanna go there. The hard thing, what brings redemption is working toward reconciliation. Church, one of the clearest pictures of the gospel the city on a hill can give to the city of Boston is learning how to resolve our conflicts. Because when people see us, the Bible says they will know us by our love for one another. Do you think that love means that we're never gonna disagree? Do you think that love means that we're never gonna get into an argument? Do you think that love means we're never gonna hurt one another? No, it's it's a love that's, that's fought for. It's a love that's worked through. It's a love that gets to the deepest parts of who we are and wrestles with them. And what a beautiful picture of the gospel where we can say that love overlooks a multitude of sins and our neighbors and our friends look at us and say, wait a minute, they, they fought and now they're friends again. They fought and now, now they're forgiving one another. And it's amazing as I get to be pastor of the church, I get to hear stories of people who have had conflict with each other, who've struggled and have seen Jesus repair those things. I pray we get to hear more stories about that. Lastly, we have to entrust ourselves to God. We resolve conflict by understanding that God is at work in the midst of them because what is God doing across these two chapters? He sees, he judges, and he says he's with them. We worry so much when conflict arises. We worry so much, but we can be freed from worry 
because God's in control. Kevin DeYoung says that we would be happier and more confident and less anxious in life if we would take a step back and realize that God knows what he's doing. Amen? Amen. What this frees you to do is to approach people, not to hide. It frees you to admit, not defend. But this is only possible because of Jesus. We're not gonna work through our conflicts just because we have good conflict resolution skills. We need the gospel. Jesus brings the end of all conflict. And the work of Jesus gives us both the promise and the framework of how to work through our conflicts. And we see this promise in Romans chapter five, verses eight through 11. It reads, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, what does that mean? It means while you were still a sinner, Jesus died for you. Verse 10, it says that we were enemies of God, that God took the first step towards you to squash the conflict between you and God. That while you were still yet a sinner, while you were still an enemy of God, Jesus died for you. Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. What's that mean? It means that Jesus absorbed all the costs of the conflict between us and him. Much more shall we be saved by the by him from the wrath of God. That's the end of all conflict. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why can we rejoice? Because we're no longer enemies of God. Because we're no longer counted as sinners in Christ. We're counted as friends. We're counted as holy And that should give us a reason to rejoice. All the guilt, all the shame has been put on Jesus who receives that through whom we now have received reconciliation. And what this does is it gives us a framework for how to apply it. What does 2 Corinthians chapter five call us? It calls us ministers of reconciliation. And it also calls us ambassadors of Christ which means that we now go into the world, we go into our relationships, we go into our homes and our workplaces with the promise of the gospel who makes, where Jesus makes all things new and ends all conflict, that we can, we can begin to apply what Jesus did for us to other people. We can make peace as peacemakers because Jesus made peace with us. We can forgive because Jesus has forgiven you. And so what's your next step this morning? Maybe this morning, you're at conflict with someone here and you need to take a few minutes and I would encourage you to do it right now, even before you take communion, pull that person aside and ask for forgiveness or express how they've hurt you and work toward reconciliation. Maybe you have a conflict with a family member or a friend or a coworker. Maybe after you leave the service today, you need to make a phone call or send a text to set up coffee. Or maybe the conflict is that you are at odds with God himself. Maybe this morning you have not been made right with God through placing your trust in Jesus alone. And I would invite you this morning, if you've not done so, to put your hope and your trust in Jesus who ends all conflicts.